Hello and welcome to Fair Voice. This is our second episode and I'm really happy to be here today with you. I'm your host, Hannah Syriac. Fair Voice is affiliated with Fair Mormon, but the opinions expressed here do not represent the opinions of Fair Mormon, the organization, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So let's talk a bit about what we're going to do today. Today is Sunday. Um, well, if you're listening to it, it is Sunday. It is not Sunday when I'm recording this. But today is Sunday for the purposes of this podcast. Today we're going to do our Come Follow Me segment where we go through the week's Come Follow Me and we share some insights. But we're also going to do a special Sunday segment. And today's special Sunday segment is going to set us up for some interviews that I have scheduled and that I'm in the process of scheduling. These interviews will be about historicity. The reason I wanted to talk about historicity right now is there have been a lot of concerns expressed over the historicity of specific books because of different perspectives and opinions that have come out recently. I would like to address these concerns and talk a bit about the methodology of determining historicity because I think we sometimes have too high of expectations for what we need to determine historicity. So let's just jump right in and I'll define historicity for you as historical authenticity. So what that means is, say you have a book, we'll use the Book of Mormon as our example. In order for the Book of Mormon to have true historicity, we would have to prove that it is in fact an ancient document. It isn't something manufactured by Joseph Smith. And there's several ways that you can do that. Some of the favorite ways that I've seen that done with the Book of Mormon, um, my favorite studies are Nahum, which is the burial site, right? I'm sure a lot of you have heard about that. I also really like the, the various word print studies that have been done on the Book of Mormon that proves multiple authorship, and I think that that's really an important point. The precision of the narrative is also really important to me too because you see that there is a pre- Christ coming law, which is Mosaic law, and then a post Christ coming law. And the difference between those two, in my opinion, is stunningly accurate. I know that if I was trying to write the Book of Mormon, if that was what I was doing, I would really struggle to keep in mind where I'm at in the narrative. And I think the narrative is just so carefully constructed. It's not rambling. It's very carefully constructed and there are different voices that you can clearly hear that progress over time. I think that this acts as an evidence of the Book of Mormon in itself. The con the construction of the narrative, the construction of the text is so different from one another that if you were trying to write a book where you were, say, transitioning from one law to the next, I think it would be easy to mess them up. But we see in the Book of Mormon that it's very consistent. And to me, this suggests that the people who are writing it were living within different systems. And Joseph Smith obviously was not living within Mosaic Law, nor do I think he was a Mosaic Law scholar. So there are several things within the Book of Mormon that prove that it is an ancient document. So that's basically an overview of history. So one of the questions that I think we have is why do we need historical evidence? Um, I don't think we need historical evidence for every single thing mentioned in scriptures. The reason for this is there is going to be stuff that we just don't know. There's a quote from A.H. Stice which reads that there are some who quote 
um, insists that a single error in detail, a single inconsistency, a single exaggeration, a single anachronism is considered sufficient to overthrow the credit of a whole narrative, end quote. I find that to be really true. A lot of the time when people will try to dispute the historicity of the Book of Abraham, the Book of Moses, the Book of Mormon in particular, they'll use one anachronism or even a handful of anachronisms or a handful of inconsistencies or things that we have yet to prove as proof of the of, as proof of the books being ahistorical. The reason that this is a disingenuous method is ant antiquity is a really difficult time period to study. I study ancient stuff, I study ancient cultures, and in my experience, the ancient cultures that I study often don't have the sufficient evidence to suggest that something did not happen. You can't exactly prove a Proving a negative is difficult because you would have to show that there was sufficient evidence that they did not know about something or did not see something. And because we haven't uncovered a lot of the things that existed in antiquity, this becomes a really difficult venture. Beyond that, you can't ever truly prove that they didn't have something. Because if someone were to write, um, let's say, let's just use pizza. That's a fun example. If someone were to write, yeah, we don't have pizza, then you'd be like, okay, well, obviously you know about pizza. So someone probably has pizza because you can illustrate pizza as a concept. So when critics try to use things such as there aren't any horses, that's a, that's a common example for the Book of Mormon. There aren't any horses in the Americas. Um, that are indigenous to, the, to that area, you would have to prove that, which you can't do. So we can only work from the evidence that we do have. And the problem with the evidence that we do have is we don't have most of it. A lot of things were lost to us in antiquity. Even take cultures that are far more studied than the Americas. I've heard um, statistics ranging from 5 to 10% to suggest that we don't have um, 95% to 90%, that was a backward statistic, but you get the point, of archaeology uncovered within the Americas. That means we don't have the majority of the Americas uncovered. We have so much more to learn there. However, I would also like to suggest that even in the culture that we do study, as I just mentioned, Greece and Rome are great examples, we don't have most of what they wrote. And we know that. And we don't have most of the objects that they used. And what we do have, we have so removed from the context of the culture that it becomes really difficult to understand what it is. I think we take for granted a lot of archaeology. So say I uncovered a vase and I have this beautiful vase and there's a painting on it, okay? And it's from, let's say, ancient Rome. I don't understand a few things about this vase that are critical. Who painted the vase? Who constructed the vase? Who wanted this vase? Who owned this vase? What did they use the vase for? And sure, I can do some studies and some tests to try to figure out um, hypo hypothetical answers to these questions, but the object is removed from the context that it was used in. So that makes evaluating historical evidence rather difficult. So the fact that we even have some historical evidence that can suggest and prove, in my opinion, there are some things that I think definitively prove the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses too. Some things that can suggest and prove the historical authenticity of these documents is huge because the evidence that we do have is what we need to work on. And that seems like a 
basic point, but a lot of critics will try to say that because we don't have evidence for specific things, that that renders the books that we study irrelevant and not ancient documents. I think that's a really disingenuous way to go about it, and I wouldn't do that with other historical documents too. We, we often don't do that with the Bible because we can see the manuscript transmission of the Bible, so people will say that that acts as evidence that it is an ancient document. With the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham and Moses, we aren't afforded that same opportunity. We don't see the transition of manuscripts. What we have is what Joseph Smith inspiredly translated from golden plates or from papyri. And that can be a little bit challenging for some in terms of their faith because we don't have the evidence of the tradition of the actual text, but what we do have is evidence that it is ancient. And I think that that trumps any evidence that we do not have. I really liken this to a concept that Elder Holland says. Um, and so in the talk, Lord, I believe, he talks about how faith isn't necessarily knowing everything. Faith is demonstrating integrity to the knowledge that we do have. And I think the same thing is true in terms of historicity. We have to demonstrate integrity to the historical evidence that we do have. I think that's of the utmost importance. Another important part of historicity is the amount of things that need to actually be true. And I'm going to use the New Testament as an example because I find this to be the clearest example. Within the New Testament, there are several parables that Jesus Christ tells. These stories do not have to literally have happened, right? Because we, de we define parable as a story that a teacher uses to illustrate a particular lesson. So these stories are didactic in nature, that means teaching in nature, and instructive, but they don't necessarily have had to happen. You didn't have to have a prodigal son returned to his father. Could that have happened? Sure. Pro probably it did happen in some senses, right? It, it, it illustrates a concept, but they don't have to be literal. That does not determine historicity. So I think a lot of the time when we think about historicity, we try to take a wholesale approach where we need everything to be literally true in scriptures. I will be transparent. I, I err on the side of the literal nature of truth in scriptures, but that doesn't mean that everything has to have happened in the exact way that it is written because sometimes authors can be using particular parables in order to convey a point. And I think that that doesn't make it invalid. I just think that's a rhetorical technique that they've that they use. But I do believe the vast majority of events in the scriptures are historical, whereas parables don't necessarily have to be historical. When we evaluate historicity, I think we have to keep that in mind and we have to understand that there is a level of rhetorical technique that is employed within the scriptures. And we have seen many really great studies on that where we see that authors will use chiasmus and they'll structure their text in such a way to have an interlocked pattern. This interlocked pattern does not mean that all of the events that they structure happened in that literal order, but they could have structured it that way and all the events could have happened so that they could convey a point. So say, for example, a historian came along and proved that there was never a prodigal son. This would not be 
a stain upon the historicity of the New Testament because you can prove that the New Testament did in fact happen. You can prove that it's an ancient document and you can prove a lot of the different events in it. So I think we need to step back from this all or nothing concept of historicity because we don't know what is literal and what is not. And again, I err on the side of things being literal. I think I take the scriptures for what they say. I believe that they are historical records and I believe that they are spiritual records. But that doesn't mean that one event that I thought was historical turns out to not be historical by evidence that we have. That's not going to shake my testimony. And I don't think that should shake yours. I think that the evidence that we do have for scriptures proves that they are ancient documents and that's what matters. So why do we need to care about historicity? There are a lot of reasons, but one of these reasons that I find most compelling is this sort of reason about covenantal relationships and covenantal responsibility. So let's take, for example, um, let's take, for example, ordinances and covenants, right? Because every ordinance has a covenant associated with it. If there isn't historicity to Jesus Christ's baptism, then there isn't a reason for us to be baptized. Um, If there isn't historicity to Jesus Christ's resurrection, and resurrection is a priesthood ordinance that we have not yet experienced, but if there isn't historicity to that, then we ourselves do not need to be resurrected, if that makes sense. Jesus Christ is the perfect exemplar for us. So I think the historical reality of these events that we can show that we can at least show that people believe that they happened. And I think we can show that they did happen through evidences of people's works, but that's a different discussion. The historical reality of particular events within scriptures matters because it shows us the examples of ordinances and covenants that we ourselves need to take. And also it's just, you know, the history of a people. And I think that 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 becomes really important to us to illustrate moral principles and to illustrate what we need to do and what other people did, um, if that makes sense. To learn from the past, I think we have to show that the past is actually the past. We as a church historically emphasize historicity in the sense that we, we encourage people to keep historical records. And the purpose of this is to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. And I think that that's what reading scriptures does for us. So with that being said, I wanted to introduce this concept because I think understanding that we don't need to, one, prove everything, two, that what we do know matters way more than what we don't know, and three, that historicity is important to faith is a good way to segue us into larger discussions that we're going to be having. And one of those larger discussions that I'm really looking forward to having is about the book of Abraham in particular. So the book of Abraham in particular has been, I would actually say more attacked than the book of Mormon, at least in terms of historicity. I would say the book of Mormon obviously is the most attacked book. I think in the history of books that are written, but I think the book of Abraham is really attacked because of the whole facsimile debacle. And I'm going to point you right now to fairmormon.org and evidences for the book of Abraham because there are so many there that I, the article itself is called Evidences That Support the Book of Abraham. There are so many there that I find to be really compelling Because again, it's what we know that matters more than what we don't know. 
And I love that concept by Elder Hall, and that talk again was, Lord, I believe. Um, so we're going to have some really interesting discussions in the coming weeks about this particular concept. But one thing that I would like to share is from John Gee, and this is um, from the Interpreter Foundation's journal, which is a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, quote, and the, the name of the article is Four Idolatrous Gods in the Book of Abraham. So I'll just read you a quote from it that I find to be very compelling. Um, quote, Although unknown as deities in Joseph Smith's day, the name of four associated idolatrous gods, and then he gives the names Elkanah, Lipnah, Mahmakra, and Korash, mentioned in the Book of Abraham, are tested anciently. Two of them are known to have connections with the practices attributed to them in the Book of Abraham. The odds of Joseph Smith guessing the names correctly is astronomical, end quote. I totally agree. I kind of stumbled on pronouncing these names in the first place. And they're really complex names that don't follow the naming patterns of a lot of other names that we see that Joseph Smith had familiarity with. I, I point this out as one of those examples of something where this piece of evidence is really compelling because it was something that they did not know. So you can't just dismiss it with the argument that Joseph Smith was incredibly well-read and he could have read it somewhere, um, though I'm not convinced that Joseph Smith was as well-read as critics think he is. Um, but this argument is compelling because it's something that they didn't know at the time, something that we now know, but that Joseph Smith knew. So I, I think that really shows that one, definitely, definitely a historical document, definitely an ancient document. And Michael Rhodes says that these these names are attributed to in ancient Hebrew and ancient Egyptian. So I think this shows us that there is this historical element to the book of Abraham that you know, I, I would say that that's a really important part of our faith is that these, these details that we didn't, that Joseph Smith could not have known, he knew because of divine inspiration. And he knew because it is in fact a translation. It's an inspired translation, which there are many different meanings to what an inspired translation can be. And I've, I really like the work that scholars have done on this because I think it's really mind opening. But just keep that in mind that most likely, <laughs> This is an ancient document, and I would actually say definitively this is an ancient document. That's my personal belief. Um, so with that as a backdrop, um, I'm going to let you know we're going to have some discussions about the Book of Abraham. I feel really inclined to do so because of a lot of the concerns that have been raised by individuals over some articles that have come out and some opinions that have been spoken. So we're going to visit this, and we're going to have some really great discussions about why the book of Abraham has to be a historical document because of the evidence that we do have. And I think that'll be incredibly fun. And at this point, I wanted to share my own perspective on what you do when individuals come to you and they're like, hey, the book of Mormon or the book of Abraham is not historical. It is not historically accurate for these reasons. The first thing that I do is I like to listen to people. I think listening to what they say and allowing them to speak is really important. I think when something is near and dear to us, as the scriptures are definitely to me and I'm sure they are to you, it's really easy to want to just jump in and defend right away. But I think letting people talk, letting people get their feelings and their thoughts out is really helpful. 
And then I take a step back, I process what they say, and I try to ask them insightful questions. I ask them about their sources. I ask them about the conclusions that they draw from their sources. Because I find a lot of the time when you when you have these sources on the internet that say, oh, you know, the Book of Mormon is ahistorical because there are no horses. That's going to be my example. We're just use the Book of Mormon with horses because there are no evidences for horses. I think that you can attack two things and I'm not using attack in a negative concept. I'm just talking about the way that we argue or the way that we discuss and argue is um, arguments within Greek philosophy or discussion. So just defining some of my terms for you. Um, so when you hear something like the Book of Mormon can't be historical because of the horses, there are a couple different things that you could say. I would say the first thing is I would point out that saying that, you know, we don't have evidences for horses doesn't disprove the Book of Mormon because you cannot use the absence of something in order to prove that something did not happen. That's not logical and that's not a proper method to use. So that would be my first thing. The second thing that I would say is you can go on Fair Mormon. They have great evidence for this. They have great scholarship done on this that I really appreciate. But you can suggest that there are these other animals that are kind of like horses that you could think are horses. And you can point out that the Book of Mormon is translated for our day. So I'm sure that a horse in the Book of Mormon was called something different than a horse, but we would understand the animal as a horse. And we have evidence for animals that kind of looked like little horses, sort of, like kind of, sort of, you know? Um, so you can use that as a way to, you know, respond to that argument. And another, another thing that I think is valuable um, is to make sure that their sources are accurate. I find that particularly with trying to disprove religious texts, a lot of the time the sources can be well-intentioned individuals who do not have expertise or a lot of knowledge in a subject. And then you could ask them to evaluate the source that it comes from. And I think that this is a really important part of evaluating historical sources. One of the reasons that I trust that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses, besides the witness that I've had, is the fact that he wasn't a really learned man at the time of translation. To me, this acts as an evidence of the translation of it. So when you are evaluating sources, I think it's important to ask yourself, so where did this source come from? Who is the person behind this? What motives do they have, whether good or bad? What reason would they have for evaluating or interpreting evidence in this way? Where did they get their evidence? How was the evidence acquired? What evidence are they leaving off the table? What evidence are they putting on the table? There are multiple different questions that you can ask. So I think that that's a good way to start to evaluate sources when people come to you. And another thing that I would add is I think it's better to try to prove than it is to disprove. It's a lot harder to prove a negative. Um, so for example, let's use the existence of God. It's a lot harder to prove that God did not exist than to prove that God existed. Because in order to prove that God did not exist, you would then have to argue, ev argue with every single argument that stands in the in the milieu of proving God's existence and there are a lot of them this has been done for thousands and thousands of years so when you're trying to have these discussions after you've listened after you've 
allowed the person to speak and you've asked them some questions to try to understand their perspective and understand where they're coming from, you can use some evidence that we do have, use the historical facts that we do have, explain your interpretation, make sure you know your sources and prove a positive rather than trying to disprove what they say. And I think that that's one of the most important things that I have learned is instead of trying to say, okay, well, you know, they definitely had horses and you're wrong. You could say, okay, so they had this animal that kind of looked like a horse and the semantic framework, the semantic shift that you do when you do that allows people to follow your logic train and then go along with you for the ride to hopefully reach the same conclusion that you did and other scholars did. So I think that's a really important part of discussing historicity. Um, so I'm going to just share one of the things that I have liked the most about historicity and why I am really interested in it. And then we'll transition to our next segment, which is Come Follow Me. So one of the things that I really liked about historicity was, to me, it shows faith in Jesus Christ. I really like the article written by Dallin H. Oates called The Historicity of the Book of Mormon. One of my favorite quotes from this article is, uh, quote, the historicity, historical authenticity of the Book of Mormon is an issue so fundamental that it rests first upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the first principle in this as in all other matters. However, on the subject of the historicity of the Book of Mormon, there are many subsidiary issues that could each be the subject of a book. It is not my purpose to comment on any of these lesser issues, either those that are said to confirm the Book of Mormon or those that are said to disprove it." End quote. So the reason I really like this quote is I think what Dallin H. Oaks is saying is that we should make this a matter of faith, not just of scholarship. And I think that this is something that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does really well. It's, to me, an important exercise to evaluate the sources that we have, to place them in the context of history, to understand the role that they have to understand how they were formed, how they were shaped, but it's also and even more important to look at these issues from a perspective of faith and see how these are not just historical records, these are spiritual records. So when we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we see the way that he influenced the documents that we are historically evaluating, I think this can remind us that we have a covenantal responsibility first and then a scholarly pursuit second. And that does not mean that scholarship is unimportant because I think it's really important. Obviously, that's what I'm doing with my life. That's why I'm going to school. That's what I study. So I find it very important. But at the same time, I think a relationship with the Savior is the most important thing. And you can find your relationship with the Savior when you recognize his divine inspiration in these moments. So that's what I have to say about historicity. If there are any particular issues that you would like to have addressed on the show, email me at h-s-e-a-r-i-a-c at fairmormon.org and we'll talk about those. I'm going to have a lot of stuff about Book of Mormon and Book of Abraham historicity for you, some great interviews lined up. I'm very excited. So let's transition now to the next segment, which is the Come Follow Me segment. I will be staying Come Follow Me with an amazing person and I'm going to introduce them to you right now. Alicia Settle is a BYU psychology graduate who graduated in April 2020. Welcome to the show, Alicia. Thanks. So today we're going to talk about Come Follow Me. So for those of you who don't know, the Come Follow Me this week was Alma 32 to 35, and the title of it was Plant This Word in Your Heart. 
I really am glad that I'm with you because we actually texted about Come Follow Me this week. We did. Yeah. Um, yeah, this week I was reading um, Alma 32 and that really struck me. Yeah, what in there stood out to you the most, would you say? Um, so I was reading um, the part, you know, the part that everyone knows um, where it's like, if you awake ar- and arouse your faculty even to an experiment upon my words and exercise a particle of faith and you just keep and it keeps going and talks about like what um, faith is. And as I was thinking about it, I realized that a lot of what I have previously thought of faith as is actually what they would consider knowledge. And faith is actually when you really don't know why you're doing something a lot of times and you just kind of have to take a step in the dark. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of describing it. And ironically, we just did this last segment on historicity where we were were talking about what we did know, but now we're talking about things that we don't know, things that we can't see. And one of the verses that I really like in Alma 32 is Alma 32, 26. Now, as I said concerning faith, that it was not a perfect knowledge, even so it is with my words. Ye cannot know of their surety at first unto perfection, any more than faith is a perfect knowledge. I really liked that says, you cannot know of a surety at first unto perfection, because I think there we can really see that Jesus Christ is the one who comes in and uses the atonement to not only cleanse us, but also to sanctify us and give us faith. And I really like the faith givingness of the atonement of Christ. Um, that's one of my, my favorite my favorite parts of this. So I wanted to ask you, what are some ways that you think we can increase our faith? Well, I feel like faith is like a muscle. So exercising our faith. So like when we take those steps into the darkness, when we're like, I don't know why God's telling me to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, those, those moments I think are the most important um, ways to increase our faith is just by using it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I like this this concept of experimenting upon the word, just trying it out. I know for myself, there was a period of time where I was really struggling with my testimony and I told God, I was like, hey, so I'm just going to live like a perfect Latter-day Saint. And of course, I soon discovered that I am the furthest thing from perfect and there is no such thing as a perfect Latter-day Saint. But I started reading my scriptures every day. I started praying every day. I started going to the temple more often. And in that moment, I felt that my experimentation on the word allowed me to develop more faith. And I saw that Jesus Christ was the author of my faith. It wasn't me just, you know, believing um, in my faith. Um, what, what are some experiences that you've had that you felt like were really faith building? And why do you think that they were faith building for you? Um, so the one that comes to mind right now is, uh, so my dad's not a member of the church and I've always really wanted him to be, but, um, I, when I went on my mission, my dad was actually really supportive of me going on a mission, but um, when I went on my mission, I discovered I had depression, but I didn't know what it was at the time. I just felt very depressed. Um, and so I would have a lot of really, really hard days as any missionary does. <laughs> um, but I decided uh, that I wanted to consecrate my mission and my hard days to my dad um, in the hopes that it would help him to come closer to Christ and that he would want to join the church. And so every day when I had a really hard day, I was like, Heavenly Father, I don't want any blessings for this. I want you to bless my dad completely. And um, as I did that, 
incredible miracles started happening. Um, so my dad would always have the missionaries over for dinner and they loved him because he makes like super good food. Um, but like one day they asked him if he wanted to take the missionary life lessons and my mom totally would have told them not to ask him at all because like, she was like, no, he's not interested. Like, don't pressure him. But he actually said yes. And then, um, they asked him to read the book of Mormon. And one of our rules was whenever we had the missionaries over, they weren't allowed to share anything from the book of Mormon. They could only share something from the Bible because he was Christian, but he didn't like the book of Mormon. But all of a sudden he started reading the book of Mormon. And I remember getting an email from him. Um, just saying that uh, he really wanted to know for himself if the book was true. Um, and over time, his answer to if he, when he's going to get baptized went from he's not to eventually. <laughs> and he's still at that eventually point, but like throughout my mission, I saw all of these incredible miracles of my dad being more receptive to the gospel than he ever was before. And, um, and I it definitely confirmed that the amount of like efforts that I put into my mission were bearing fruit and that that faith was, was real and was true. I really like that. Thanks for sharing that. That made me really think of verse 42, which reads, and because of your diligence and your faith and your patience with the word and nourishing it, that I may take root in you, behold, by and by ye shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, and which is white above all that is white, yea, and pure above all that is pure, and ye shall feast upon this fruit, even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst, end quote. I really like that verse because when you were talking, I was thinking about how you're describing it as a process. It wasn't something that came all at once. It's a, it's an ongoing process and your diligence even today is bringing blessings into his life, which I think is really cool. The verse that stood out to me the most was verse 43. Um, then my brethren, ye shall reap the rewards of your faith and your diligence and your patience and long suffering, waiting for the tree to bring forth fourth fruit unto you end quote this verse really stood out to me for several reasons um i had an experience where i was told something very similar to this verse and so i read that and i was like one wow like god is so aware of me like literally two weeks ago i was told in a couple of weeks you'll reap the rewards of your patience and then I, I come across this verse and come follow me. And I was like, wow, that's really nifty. You know, like <laughs> God, God really scheduled this one. I feel like in my life where he aligned the come follow me with the, the sentiment of my blessing. But the one, the one part of that verse that I really like is the long suffering part. And I, I liked what you said about bad days because those bad days can be consecrated through the atonement of Christ where he makes everything an experience for our good. And that suffering is, I think, integral to understanding God. Yeah, I definitely agree. I was thinking about today, um, <laughs> I saw um, a meme and it, <laughs> it, it was one of the cynic and stoic memes, memes um, but it was like, it said something about like um, a, a a, a baby bird was telling its mom, it's like, mom, pleasure is good and uh, suffering is bad. And she like kicks him out of the nest, um, which is great anyway. Um, but I was thinking about how like suffering isn't inherently bad because it's important. Um, it, it's uncomfortable. It's painful even, but it's not bad because um, when we, 
I mean, that's the, what that's like one of the things we're supposed to do in life. I mean, if suffering wasn't important, we wouldn't do it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think it ties back to the atonement of Christ, where we see that Christ's suffering, right, wasn't just because of sins. I think a lot of the time we focus on the sin part of the atonement and not as much on the grief, pain, and afflictions of every kind part of the atonement. But those... Those sacrifices that our Savior made are sacrifices that we can also emulate, too, in our suffering. I thought that was a really, really good point on uh, on what you said. Um, I just wanted to kind of backtrack real quick before we move on to Alma 33. I really, I, I, you you, you uh, referred to this verse as well, but I just want to read this verse because I think it's really, really good. It's verse 27. Um, but behold, if you will awake and arouse your faculties even to experiment upon my words and exercise a particle of faith even if ye can no more than desire to believe let this desire work in you even until ye believe in a manner that ye can give place for a portion of my words i love i love the phrase and exercise a particle of faith if you can no more than desire to believe there have been definitely times in my life where i have felt like the only thing that i could do was just be like god i, I want to believe you yeah, um, actually, this is another mission story. Um, so, uh, because I had a really rough time on my mission, I often just didn't, I, I flat out didn't want to be a missionary. And so I would sit there and I'm like, okay, all I need to do is want to be a missionary. Do I want to be a missionary? And I'm like, I want to want to be a missionary. And sometimes I'd go through a lot of want to want to's until I got to where I was at. <laughs> but I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna start from here. I want to want to want to be a missionary, so maybe I can manage to want to want to be a missionary. And then if I can do that, then I can want to be a missionary and then I can be a missionary. Um, <laughs> which <laughs> was definitely an exercise. Um, but uh, yeah, so, um, but it, it actually did help me um, to be able to get to the point where I could trust in God enough for him to get me through the hardest parts of my um, of my mission. Yeah, I love what you said about want to want. I I, I was thinking of the Elder Holland's talk, Lord, I believe, which I ironically referenced in the history city segment that comes right before this. But he talks about this little boy who comes to him and says, Elder Holland, I don't know if the church is true, but I want it to be true. I hope that it is. And I think sometimes when I when I get out of bed, I'm like, okay, I don't really want to read my scriptures all the time, you know? I'm not perfect, but I want to want that. I want that desire because when we have a desire, it's easier for us to do things. But I think there's something really holy and righteous and wanting to have righteous desires. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Let's go on to Alma, Alma 32. 33. Um, yeah, 33, thanks. Luckily, this is unedited, so you can hear all my mistakes. That's what we like. That's what we like to hear. <laughs> um, I, I really like the beginning of Alma 33, um, the idea of being out of your own churches and still being able to worship God. I have kind of a weird overlay dramatic story. So my dad is not a member of the church. Um, he's a really great man. Um, just He's Catholic, um, but not practicing. So one time I was on vacation with him and we wouldn't go to church when we were on vacation. But for some reason, I was so bent on going to church. So I decided on a Sunday morning that I was going to bike and just find whatever church it was. I was like, I don't care what denomination of church it was. I'm just going to go to it. And I biked. I think it, I think I ended up at a Catholic church. And ironically, I was like, 
right after the the service ended and i was like okay so well i can't go to church today what do i do and i think we've all kind of felt like that in covid like how have you felt with not this is very this is very relatable <laughs> yeah it's it's almost like god planned it this way almost um, <laughs> but uh no um it's definitely changed things um and it's it's cool to see all the different miracles and all the timing that God has had because a lot of the programs that have been kind of rolled out um, is directly designed to improve our worship in our homes. But um, it's been definitely an experience. In some ways, I feel like I've definitely missed out on some really important parts of worship. But at the same time, I'm able to focus on the things that I'm really interested in and I'm able to um, have just discussions with lots of different um, people, lots of like people that wouldn't be in my church classes necessarily, or just like, I mean, um, I think it also helps me to realize how important it is for me to do my reading. Cause if I don't do my reading, I can't just sit in Sunday school and find out what happened. <laughs> um, I have to do it myself because otherwise there's no way that I'm going to n- know the things that I was supposed to know this week. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I think it's definitely called us to repentance in a lot of different ways. Um, One of the verses that I really liked that I think kind of in that vein was was Alma 33, verse 5 and 6. So, yea, O God, and thou wast merciful unto me when I did cry unto thee in my field, when I did cry unto thee in my prayer, and thou didst hear me. And again, O God, when I did turn to my house, thou didst hear me in my prayer. The reason I really like this is I think it shows that he was doing all that he could do in that instance. And in our instances, right, like, we're in the same ward, and we have church every other week in person, but besides that, we have sacrament meeting groups. So all that we can do is sometimes studying come follow me with our with our roommates or just going to our sacrament meeting group and that sometimes can feel like a smaller effort but it can be a bigger effort too um and i just i really liked that and um do you want to read alma 33 verse 11 for us i think that's a really important verse of course um and thou didst hear me because of mine afflictions and my sincerity and it is because of thy son that thou hast been thus merciful unto me. Therefore, I, I will cry unto thee in all mine afflictions, for in thee is my joy. For thou hast turned thy judgments away from me because of thy son. Awesome. So what are some thoughts that you have on that? Um, I, I've actually been thinking a lot about like how God answers prayers and how to, how to put my will in line with God's, which is one of the purposes of prayer. Um, and... I was just really struck by him um, him crying out to God for help. Um, he wasn't exactly saying, why is this happening to me, or blaming him. It was more like, help me. And I think that's really the key with um, saying prayers that you will feel are answered, is when you are simply asking for more strength and not necessarily for some crazy thing to happen to stop whatever trial you're dealing with. Um, Or um, if you're trying to, I mean, sometimes when you ask why it's important, but sometimes the idea going back to faith is that we don't know why, and that gives us an opportunity to exercise greater faith. 
Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think it also shows us in whom we should have faith and in whom our joy should be too. A lot of the time, I think we rely too much on our circumstances. And as President Nelson says, the joy that we feel is independent of our circumstances. It's because of our Savior that we're able to feel joy and we're able to worship him. So I think in those instances, as you said, like we should pray for strength and we should not necessarily pray for understanding. Sometimes I think we should pray for understanding, but I think we should pray for comfort, pray for the ability to get through it because that's what ultimately matters. Um, I just really, really like that section. Was there anything else in Alma 33 that stood out to you? Um, actually, the comment that you just made about um, being happy regardless of our circumstances. So I recently took a positive psychology class at BYU um, during my last semester. And uh, we actually learned that circumstances are like a very small percentage of our happiness. Um, it's really what we're doing and what, how we're reacting to our circumstances that makes the hugest difference. Obviously, our circumstances can have some impact, but it's for the most part, it's what impact we allow it to have on us. Yeah, I totally agree with that because we're ultimately the ones who can decide how we feel. And I know that seems like a kind of a foreign concept because it's really it's really easy when feelings come, I like to say, come upon us. And we're like, okay, like, I am now feeling this way. And we feel like it's so out of our control. But because of the atonement of Christ, there's a degree to it that I think we can control. I don't think we can control everything. You know, we're in a fallen world. We're going to have depression. We're going to have anxiety, the resolution of which will not be easy. But I think through the atonement of Christ, we can feel at least a particle of comfort. Um, and one of the verses that I really liked about the atonement, and it's one of my favorite verses or set of verses, is in Alma 34. Um, for it is expedient that an atonement should be made. For according to the great plan of the eternal God, there must be an atonement made, or else all mankind must unavoidably perish. Yea, all are hardened, yea, all are fallen, and are lost, and must perish, except it be through the atonement of Christ, which is expedient should be made. For it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice. Yea, not a sacrifice of man, neither of beast, neither of any man or of fowl. For it shall not be a human sacrifice, but it must be an infinite and eternal sacrifice, end quote. I just love the phrase, it must be an infinite and eternal sacrifice. What does that mean to you? I think they're really going through the reasoning of why we need an atonement. Um, my, f my friend, uh, one of my best friends used to call this chapter the chapter that you need to read if you want to understand the atonement. Um, but I think, I think that there's no way that any of us can make an infinite sacrifice. We are just, we're fallen beings. We can't, we can't possibly do that. Um, and like, we can't even imagine the things that Christ had to go through to be able to make an infinite eternal sacrifice. But, um, like he literally had to, in some sense, live through every single one of our experiences in order for him to do that. And like, we literally cannot comprehend it, but, um, it's so comforting though to know that he he did that for us so that we could be able to live in this imperfect life and become better and grow so that we can be more like god i really like that i like knowing that he's the one that we need to rely on it's it's not you know it's not me it's not you it's just him and i think going on going off that point about relying on him and 
trusting in him. I really like the verses that are um, 17 to 19. Therefore, may God grant unto you, my brethren, that ye may begin to exercise your faith unto repentance, that ye may begin to call upon his holy name, that he might have mercy upon you. Yea, cry unto him for mercy, for he is mighty to save. Yea, humble yourselves and continue in prayer unto him. I lied. We're going to just read one more verse. <laughs> cry unto him when ye are in your fields, yea, all over your flocks, end quote. I love this because I love the power and emotion that there is in crying unto the Lord. I think sometimes when we repent, I, I maybe I shouldn't speak for all of us. When I repent, sometimes it feels kind of transactionary. You know, I'm kind of like, okay, God, here are my sins. Here's what I need to improve. I'm sorry. Amen. But it really should be more of a a, a more of a powerful soul wrenching experience. I feel like, and I, I know that those prayers are the prayers that I remember the ones that I just pour out my entire soul, as it says in 26. And I allow my heart to be, I, I allow my heart to be open to the Lord. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I think the most heart changing experiences, which I think is the point of repentance anyway, is, is for your heart to change. Um, are the ones where you're the most sincere and you really see what you've done like through almost through God's eyes um, or like unfiltered sort of because like you see like what you did wrong and how it affected other people and um, like maybe even how God feels about what you've done. And then you just feel horrible. And then God God reminds you that he also loves you and that you are not less because you did it, um, but rather that you can change and you can keep going because of the atonement. I think that's a really good point. And I really liked what you said about changing our hearts and seeing things through God's eyes. You, you made me think of the Greek word metanoio, and that's the word for repentance within the Greek New Testament president Nelson, I think referenced it a couple of years ago in a talk, but it really means to change mind. Or I would argue that because mind and heart are such an interconnected concept within Greek, it means to change your heart. And you made me really think of the verse 28 and I'm just going to skip down um, to, I, I would say if we're going to make it A and B sections, it's probably section B onward. Um, for after ye have done all these things, which is crying unto the Lord for repentance, asking for forgiveness, having faith, all these things, after you've done all these things, if ye turn away the needy and the naked and visit not the sick and afflicted and part of your substance, if ye have it to those who stand in need, I say unto you, if you do not do any of these things, behold, your prayer is vain and availeth you nothing and ye are as hypocrites who do deny the faith. Therefore, if you do remember, if you, oh, do not remember, we need the not to be charitable, ye are as dross, which the refiners do cast out, it being of no worth and is trodden under the foot of men. Just a side note, I'm really grateful that they put that in the, in the, the parentheses, because I would have been like, okay, so it's dross. Um, but anyways, I really like the, that this point where when we have our hearts changed and when we repent truly and become as God is a little bit more obviously not even close but just a little bit more then we have our hearts open to doing those things and that's the point of the gospel right that's that's the sorting technique that jesus is going to use that we see in matthew where the the difference between the sheep and the goats is all of these things mm -hmm. yeah um i think i think um that was something 
for some reason I'm thinking about like other Christian faiths and how a lot of times they believe in kind of doing that repentance process like almost once in their life like that's how they show that they believe uh, they only need to like accept Christ once but I think in order to and this is where both of our faiths kind of collide is that if you truly believe in Christ and if you truly want to worship him and you tr truly want to repent then you would be following all of his other commandments as well and if you aren't then have you actually repented um, now, desire is very different than actually doing it, <laughs> I should mention. <laughs> yeah, I think you make a really good point there because when we repent, it's, it's not just a one-time event, right? Like, I think we, we have very poignant spiritual experiences, but at the same time, we need to have repentance be more of a daily thing. Again, President Nelson, amazing man, amazing prophet, talks about the necessity for daily repentance. And I think for me... Daily repentance can be kind of summarized in verse 38. That ye contend no more against the Holy Ghost, but that ye receive it and take upon you the name of Christ, that ye humble yourselves even to the dust and worship God in whatsoever place ye may be in, in spirit and in truth, and that ye live in thanksgiving daily for the many mercies and blessings which he doth bestow upon you. And then the next verse as well, and I just think of that Elder Bednar talk that was so wonderful. Um, yea, and I also exhort you, my brethren, that ye be watchful unto prayer continually, that ye may be not that ye may not be led away by the temptations of the devil, that he may overpower you, that ye may not. oh thanks, not overpower you. We're forgetting all the knots today. <laughs> that ye may not become his subjects at the last day, for behold, he rewardeth you no good thing. I love seeing the difference between the fruits of Christ and the fruits of something that's so evil, because the fruits of Christ, the fruits of repentance. I feel like are more desires. They're more desires to be humble. They're more desires to be grateful and to recognize the mercies in our lives and to be able to become more Christian, honestly. And I just love seeing the difference between those two because it reminds me that daily repentance is important because it will transform me into the type of person that'll want to do these things more often. Yeah, um, sometimes I feel like... Uh... The more that I repent, the more I realize that little things that I was doing were wrong, too. Um, like, my my threshold for how bad things are before I repent, like, continues to be lowered. Yes? Yes. Um, <laughs> can't remember that direction, but basically, I, I remember to repent about the smaller things, or I feel worse about the smaller things that I do. Um, which I think is, is essential in trying to become more perfect. Um, is that um, I also think it's funny throughout the Book of Mormon, especially in Alma, um, they continually, uh, or I guess Mormon points out various points where um, it's like, and thus we see that Satan doesn't uh, reward his servants. Mm -hmm. Honestly, Satan's kind of a jerk as far as a master goes. Um, he never helps his his people out. Let's. I, I'd rather follow Jesus Christ personally. Yeah, same here, 100%. And I like what you said about how, you know, like, the little things start to bother you more. I've noticed in my own life, like, the more that I read my scriptures, the more that I pray to God, the more that I center my life on Jesus Christ, the less desire I have to do things that are not necessarily wrong, but they're, they're just not the most productive things I could be doing. I had an experience the other day where, you know, most of the time I'm kind of a dork. I listen to hymns and I listen to cheesy Christian music. That's kind of my MO. You know, I wear Bible quotes t-shirts when I'm not wearing church clothes. And I wear church clothes pretty much every day. <laughs> um, 
But I, I was like, oh, maybe I should just, like, you know, listen to this secular song. And there's nothing, just to be clear, nothing wrong with secular music. Um, this song in particular had some thematic stuff that wasn't the greatest, wasn't horrible. I started listening to it and I was like, nah, fam, I'm good. Like... <laughs> This uh, isn't about Jesus Christ. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I'm gonna just leave that. I would rather, I'd rather listen to music that, you know, centers my life more on Christ because I find that that's one way that I am able to do what the last verse says. And we're just gonna read that and then we'll close up. I, I want to hear your thoughts on this last verse. Um, but that ye have patience and bear with those afflictions with a firm hope that ye shall rest one day from all your afflictions. What are your thoughts on that? Resting from all my afflictions sounds amazing, um, but patience is probably the hardest thing. Today I was actually thinking about um, what is the difference between patience and faith, and I think that patience is just a part of faith. Um, in order for you to exercise faith, you have to be patient, because sometimes there's a lot of not knowing, and there's a lot of waiting, and there's a lot of just dealing with stuff that you don't understand, I guess. <laughs> um, and. I think it's integral in um, in our growth that we have to exercise pa patience. And that's something that if you're anything like me, you're going to learn about a thousand times throughout your life. Um, but yeah, I think just um, being, I think just being patient and knowing that all things pass away um, and that you're never going to have to be in the same situation forever is is the most important thing about getting through life yeah i totally agree and thank you so much for all of your thoughts i'm just gonna close with my testimony that i know jesus christ lives i know jesus christ is the savior and i know that he established the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints so that way we can enjoy all of the promised blessings we can develop a covenantal relationship with him and we can grow closer to him and i am so grateful for the scriptures and for that knowledge. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. So just to review what we covered is we talked about the historicity of the book of Abraham a tiny bit and a little bit about the book of Mormon, but we really just did a discussion on what historicity is and why it's important for the church of Jesus Christ, a lot of day saints. And then we did some come follow me and coming up on the podcast, we have some really exciting things, but I just want to let you know, if you have questions that you want me to answer, we can do like a mailbag sort of situation. And you can email me at h-s-e-a-r-i-a-c at fairmormon.org. That is h-s-e-a-r-i-a-c at fairmormon.org. My specialties are early Christianity and Second Temple Judaism and Roman stuff. And I would say in terms of more modern things, I'm, I'm really interested in doctrinal doctrinal stances what is doctrine um questions like that but if you ask me a question that i don't know the answer to i have a lot of resources to find out the answer and to answer the question for you or get someone else who has a better perspective on it to speak to it um i think it's really important to talk about these issues and i love talking about church history and reading about that and just responding to critics of the church i would say is one of my specialties as well. That's what I like doing. Um, anyways, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to ask you if you could share and subscribe this pod subscribe to this podcast. Let's share it. Make sure that the word gets out um, about the work that we're doing here. Because if there's someone who wants answers to questions, 
I want to be able to make this podcast something that you want. So you can do that. You can comment. You can email me. Please do all those things. Anyways, thank you very much. This was Fair Voice, and this is your host, Hannah Syriac, signing off.